Well, you can turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, as, as Robert said earlier, we are going to take a, a bit of a break this morning to speak about uh, the Reformation. Today marks, well, tomorrow marks, um, fifth, what is it? 505. Yeah, 505? Okay, great. Thanks. 505 years, there we go, uh, when Martin Luther nailed the theses. So, um, Romans 3, this is one of the verses that uh, provoked Luther to do what he did and to spawn the Reformation. Romans 3, 20, verses 21. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Our title this morning, the message I want to bring to you this morning is Martin Luther and the glorious gospel of justification by faith alone. It's a truth that has overwhelmed my soul throughout the years, and I hope it's encouraging for you today. I'm sure there's some in this room who have no idea what the Reformation is, and if that's so, welcome. That's just fine. Hopefully this gives you a little taste of what the Reformation was all about and the effects we still have it today. For those of you who do know something about the Reformation and who have studied it far more than I have, hopefully you walk away encouraged and strengthen your faith with what uh, Luther and uh, many others, men and women, uh, did those 500 years ago. So what I want to do, this is going to be a brief and incomplete outline of Luther's life and theology. I'm only going to take us actually up to 1518 to where Luther finds himself in Heidelberg, Germany. So that's not very far into Luther's uh, reform. In fact, some say actually just the beginning. Uh, So I'm leaving a lot out. Uh, Go and read Luther yourself and read secondary sources uh, about his life and ministry. But what I want to do with you today, I want to give you an outline of, um, of just the cities that he was in uh, up until 1518. So Erfurt, Erfurt uh, Rome, Wittenberg, and Heidelberg. We'll walk through these one by one, and then I just want to at the end comment, make a few comments on uh, the gospel of justification by faith alone. It is really the freedom by which we live and move in Christ. So Martin Luther and the glorious gospel of justification by faith alone. Erfurt, the best-known reformer whom God used to usher in the Reformation is Martin Luther. He was born in a small town called Eisleben, Germany, on November 10th, 1483, 500 years before my wife was born, which is, I think, why we're married. It is said that his father, Hans Luther, prayed aloud at the bedside of his newborn son, asking God to grant him grace that he might become known for learning and piety. Hans wanted young Martin to enter the legal profession, so Martin studied at the University of Erfurt on the way to that vocation. In 1502, at the age of 19, uh, by the way, uh, Luther scholar Heiko Obermann says we really, it's hard to say definitively what happened the first 18 years of Luther's life. So 
you can go back to tra tradition, we'll say one thing, but I think it's hard to pin down what exactly took place. So we're going to pick up when he's 19. Fair enough? All right. The age of 19, 1502, Luther receives a bachelor's degree ranking 30th of 57 in his class. So he's middle of the pack. In 1505, Luther receives his Master of Arts at the University of Erfurt, ranking second among 17. So he's increasing. That summer, on July 2nd, 1505, on the way home from law school, Martin is caught in a thunderstorm and hurled to the ground by lightning. He cries out, as many of you know, Help me, Saint Anne. I will become a monk. Luther views that storm as God's judgment upon his soul. This was the life and the world in which Luther lived. That's how they viewed things. So he cries out to the only mediator he knew, the, the, saint, the, the, uh, the mediator for copper miners of his dad. So help me, Saint Anne. Well, 15 days later, July 17, 1505, Luther knocks at the, at the gate of the Augustinian order in Erfurt and asks to be accepted. He is. I want to pause here for just a moment in Luther's life because Luther later writes that this decision to enter the monastery was, quote, a flagrant sin, end quote. Typical Luther language, right? He says it was made against his father. His father wanted him to go into law school. And it was made out of fear. And then Luther, this is later in life, he adds, quote, How much good the merciful Lord has allowed to come of it. End quote. And I want to pause just for a moment because I think a lesson is to be had here. God, in his providence, is not hindered by your past. Some of us have made, like Luther, flagrant sins and blunders in our past. And we live with sorrow, oftentimes regret, in our past. And I think Luther, if we're listening to Luther right here, he, he's saying, you know what? God in his grace and providence can turn your blunders and, yes, beloved, your flagrant sin into a life of fruitful ministry and joy rather than a life of sorrow and regret. That's good news for the sinner. That's good news for the Christian. Okay, Rome. Five years later, it's 1510, and Luther is professor of moral philosophy at the University of Wittenberg. Johann von Staupitz is the vicar general of the Augustinian order. But more importantly, and if you know the life of Luther, if you don't know the life of Luther, get to know this man. 
Johann von Staupitz, more importantly, is spiritual advisor to Luther. You have to understand something. At this point, Luther struggles what the German word is called Anfektugen. Okay? It's hard to translate into English, but it has to deal with spiritual desertion. Uh, Luther described God as deserting him. Anfektugen uh, is, is the, the abandonment, the divine abandonment upon the sinner. And Luther feels at this point that God has left him. And so he's always coming to Johann von Staupitz, confessing his sin. What do I have to do to be brought back into good graces with God? Well, von Staupitz believes that a trip to Rome is going to cure Luther of his unfectugen. As it turns out, Staupitz miscalculates. Expecting to find the church pure and the priests godly men, Luther witnesses firsthand the corruption and idolatry which plagued much of Rome. Not all of Rome, but much of it. Many of the priests, again, not all. We shouldn't overstate what was happening. But many of the priests were self-serving men embroiled in idolatry and moral corruption. When Luther experienced, or what Luther experienced during that trip to Rome would later shape his opinions of the papacy and feel the kind of rhetoric he was happy to employ against it, all right? You have to understand that when you come to cr across Luther's rhetoric, he has this experience of Rome in his mind. And there were calls previous to Luther that called for moral reform. That was happening in that time. But Luther strikes at the heart of the problem as Luther constructs a theological reform that eventually spawns the Reformation. Is that clear? There were calls for moral reform, okay? Uh, but Luther takes it a step further to a theological reform. We'll see that in a bit later. Uh, three, Wittenberg. Back in the classroom, Luther continued to exegete his way through books of Scripture, specifically Psalms and Romans. From 1512 to 1517, the routine work, so if you don't like monotony, here's Luther's life, the routine work of studying, teaching, praying, and fasting impacts Luther's theology in two significant areas. Okay, you need to know this. First, Luther changes his mind on the nature of sin. Carl Truman writes, quote, Luther had been taught that sin was a weakness that needed to be dealt with via the sacraments and Christian virtue. End quote. Does everyone hear that? That's the air Luther breathed, studying likes of Gabriel Beale, Peter Lombard, and others. There was the Via Moderna, the modern way that had a, a positive spin. Aquinas was a, a bit more pessimistic on the nature of sin, I believe. Um, but the air Luther breathed was sin was 
was uh, a defect. Sin was a weakness. And so what we needed was grace, but not in the sense of resurrection. Grace was an enabler. Okay? So Michael Reeves, scholar of the Reformation, says uh, grace in the medieval understanding was like a can of Red Bull. Our problem was weakness. Our problem was lethargy, slothfulness. So, hey, just down a cup of grace. And that will enable you through via the sacraments to live life that would be pleasing to God. Christian virtue. Luther comes to see that grace is not in a, an enabling thing. Luther and for the other reformers come to see that grace is Christ. Grace is a savior. It's not simply an enabler. Grace is the achiever that resurrects the dead sinner unto life. So, Sinners were highly defective, and therefore what was needed was moral triage, okay? Renovation. Luther, however, through studying Psalms and Romans, is convinced that sinners are morally dead. So with Augustine in one hand and Paul in the other, Luther concludes that if the sinner is dead, he needs more than a cleaning up of sinful tendencies Via the sacraments, he needs to be resurrected. This is what Luther is beginning to understand, 1512, 1517. This then leads to Luther's second change of thinking during this time. He begins to understand that salvation is not a combination of God's enabling grace and the sinner's works. It wasn't synergism. Luther understands that salvation is the utter despair of oneself and the throwing of oneself entirely and without reserve upon God's mercy. This is what Luther begins to see. The good news of utterly despairing of yourself in your own righteousness. And therefore, my help is not in here. My help is out there. And Luther says time and time again, I must cast myself upon the mercy of God in Christ. He's beginning to see it. Um, so he writes, actually, during this period, a letter. All the reformers were, were letter writers. Luther writes to his fellow Augustinian friar, George Splendlin, April 8, 1516. Hear this quote. I love this. Now, he says, I should like to know whether your soul, tired of its own righteousness, is learning to be revived by and to trust in the righteousness of Christ. Isn't that amazing? He's beginning to see it. 
He's beginning to get it. The seeds of Reformation theology is beginning to grip Luther. Aren't you tired, he says, George, of your own righteousness? Nothing's changed, has it? We could write that today. Aren't you tired of your own righteousness, George? And have you come to cast yourself on the righteousness of Christ? So the seeds of the Reformation are beginning to take root in Luther's heart. It's amazing to watch this take place. Okay, we're still in, we're still in Wittenberg. At last, it's October 1517. So that's all before the 95 Theses, okay? While Luther is undergoing his theological transformation, a Dominican friar, Johann Tetzel, um, Truman says, a profane yet brilliant salesman, is authorized by the Roman church to sell indulgences. Okay, these are, these are paper certificates guaranteeing reduced time in purgatory. I don't have time to get bogged down in indulgences or purgatory, but that's the idea. So he was authorized, Tetzel was, to finance building projects back in Rome and for wars as, as well. Luther, having concluded that God's grace was so costly that only the death and resurrection of the Son of God himself could deal with our sin, saw that cash transactions of indulgences as a cheapening of grace. So he's not very happy about it. On October 31st, 505 years ago, 1517, Luther nailed to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, standard way for debate, by the way, his 95 theses against the practice of the sale of indulgences. And I love this, what Carl Truman says. He says, quote, Though Luther probably did not realize it at the time, these struck at the heart of the medieval sacramental system, and more importantly, the authority of the church as the magisterium over one's soul. In criticizing indulgence, um, Truman writes, Luther also did what is always guaranteed to precipitate a reaction. He hit the church where it hurts most, in her revenue department. So if you want to start a fight, get involved in money. So, the 90, so something needs to be said here. The 95 Thesis, I think, take on this kind of mythical, uh, um, magical um, embodiment to, to us sometimes. As if the 95 Thesis spawned the Reformation. I don't think, as I, to the best of my knowledge in reading, as Truman says, he, Luther really doesn't, um, he's, that's not what he's doing. When he, when he nails these theses. He's not trying to um, start a fight with the church. Um, so Luther at this point is not really an outlaw. He's not an outlaw at all. And he's not really a reformer at this point in October 31st, 1517, even though these theses kind of take on a, a mythical status. What does happen is 1518 in Heidelberg. Do we have Heidelberg up there? 
Yes. 1518 and 1519 is where the Reformation, I think, really begins, and it begins in Heidelberg. So six months later, after the posting of the 95 Theses, April 15, 1518, in Heidelberg, Germany, Luther attends the Augustinian Order's general chapter meeting. He was prepared, or he has prepared, a more positive exposition of his theology, the 28 Theses, as the event comes to be known as Luther's Heidelberg Disputation. And this is where I think you begin to see the seeds or these seeds blossoming uh, to Reformation theology, especially in justification by faith alone. Uh, one side point, I find this fascinating. A young man by the name of Martin Bootser is in attendance at the Heidelberg Disputation uh, in April 1518, listening to Luther. And it, it's a profound time on Bootser's life. Bootser, later in life, is in Strasbourg. And when Calvin is exiled from Geneva in 1538 to 1541, Calvin is exiled to Strasbourg. And who does he learn from? Martin Bootser, who was at Heidelberg earlier with Luther. What's more fascinating, later in Bootser's life, he's in England teaching theology at Cambridge. And he's formative with Thomas Cranmer in the English Reformation in the Book of Common Prayer. He's like the Waldo of the Reformation. He's just everywhere. Uh, maybe we'll do him next year. Um, but he's, he's, I guess my point is, not only do you not know who's in your, in your congregation at that point, but you just see God's providence, right? Don't you? As, as, as he's moving Bootser in and around, and Calvin really becomes, well, some say he's, he's kind of transformed into a pastor under Bootser. Uh, in Strasbourg, before he goes back to Geneva. Um, in fact, Bootser has a great book. This is, I'm getting way in the weeds here. Um, <laughs> um, Bootser has a book called the, uh, uh, Concerning the True Care of Souls. He writes on pastoral ministry, and it's a phenomenal book on what it means to be a pastor and shepherd. So uh, Martin Bootser is at this Heidelberg Disputation Listening to Luther, the theology of glory, the theology of the cross, which you can't have time to get into. Um, but it's a profound, just, I think, a, a lesson again about the providence of God at this moment in time. Okay, so we're in Heidelberg. I want to give you three theses. We're not going to go through all 28. I want to mark, mark three, okay? Thesis 25. Again, this is kind of getting into justification by faith alone. This is 25. He is not justified who does many works, but he who without work believes much in Christ. So Luther has these tweets, right? These short statements, and they're punctuating. And these statements 
shot, root, shot right through, especially this one, right through medieval theology. Listen to me. Justification in the medieval understanding. By the way, there is no really formative Catholic church at this time. The Council of Trent comes in 1546. So justification in the medieval understanding, hear this, was a process of growing righteous by the impartation of Christ's righteousness connected to the infusion of grace via the sacraments that the sinner would lay hold of. It's a mouthful. In other words, the medieval understanding was not one is justified simply by works. The understanding was by grace, God would infuse or impart into the sinner Christ's righteousness and grace. Okay? That righteousness is then laid hold of how? Not by faith. Via the sacraments. And once you laid hold through God and that grace through the sacraments, that is how one became more and more justified. Well, Thesis 25 blows that up. Luther quotes Romans 3.20, what we read, 1.17 and 10.10, asserting that the channel for justification, this is important, the channel for justification is not the sacraments, but faith. And the righteousness given to the sinner is not a moral impartation, a moral infusion. It's not that. It is a legal imputation. And thus you have Luther's great taxonomy of the great exchange. That all that Christ is and has, life. Grace, redemption. He gives to the sinner. And all that the sinner is, sin, death, and condemnation, the sinner gives to Christ. And thus in Luther's mind and in the Bibles, Christ doesn't justify the godly who lay hold of the sacraments. Christ justifies, Romans 4, 5, the ungodly. That is the miracle of the Reformation as it stands with Luther. This great exchange that all that Christ is and has, he gives to the sinner. Luther loved the analogy of a husband and a bride. And all that the sinner has, he or she gives to Christ. And thus one is justified in his sight. It's an amazing truth. Well, Thesis 30, uh, not 36, 26. Thesis 26. The law says do this, and it is never done. Grace says believe in this, and all things are already done. 
you can see the pithy wisdom of Luther here. Here, Luther is defending that the law is holy, true, and good, but also that the law cannot give to us what it demands. He says it right there. The law is never done. The law is never satisfied. Not with the sinner. It can curse, but it cannot bless. Grace, on the other hand, gives. Grace grants to the sinner what the sinner needs most. Faith in Christ. And therefore, all things are done for the sinner. Not because the sinner has done them in himself, but because Christ has done them for the sinner and the sinner has laid hold of Christ by faith. And so you get this great distinction in Luther theology, the law and the gospel. This is what Luther in 1518, 1519 is beginning to see. Justification, not via the sacraments, but by faith alone, is setting him free from the torture he put himself in the monastery. He always asked himself, as we ask ourselves today, man, have I done enough for God's righteousness, for God's standard? Have I done enough? And Luther says, Christ has done enough for me. Christ has done enough for me. And I lay hold of him by faith and faith alone. And that's what liberates Luther unto Christian virtue and good works. Not by pursuing that virtue as a goal of itself, but by pursuing who Luther is in Christ. And out of that rest and grace come Christian virtue. That's what set Luther free. And that's what sets us free. The gospel of justification by faith alone. Well, thesis 28. This is my favorite. The love of God does not find, but creates that which is lovable. The love of man is made up of those things which it loves. What an absolute profound statement. And I'm so thankful for the gospel of grace. The love of God, beloved, does not find that which is lovable. It creates that which is lovable. This is arguably the most beautiful statement ever written by Luther. And dare I say, the Reformation at large. For Luther and for the Bible, 
sinners are not loved because they are attractive. They are attractive because they are loved. Do you see the difference? Jesus came not to call the righteous, but sinners. One of the things that's so remarkable about the Reformation is that it just enlarges the heart of God in Christ for sinners. (laughs) If you are here today and you are not what you want to be, the Reformation has glorious news for you. All that you want to be is never obtainable through the law. It's already been obtained by Christ. And you stand in Him by faith. We live, therefore, not for more favor with God. Hallelujah. We live from the favor we have already by faith in Christ. That's the glorious gospel of justification by faith alone as we stand in Him. The love of God does not find but creates that which is lovable. As Luther himself wrote, and as we sang earlier, though great our sins and sore our woes, his grace much more aboundeth. His helping love no limit knows. Our utmost need it soundeth. Our shepherd good and true is he who will at last his Israel free from all of their sin and sorrow, from all of their sin and sorrow, past, present, and future, walk in the glorious news of justification by faith alone. Let's pray. Oh, great God, we are humbled that your love does not find that which is lovable, but it creates. May this be the anchor of this church. May that be the anchor of every single person in this room, that we are in Christ perfect and righteous in your sight. Amen.